Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today we'll be speaking with author and Tulane professor Zachary Lazar, who just released a new novel called Vengeance. How's it going today, Zachary? It's good. Good to see you, David. Good to see you as well. Glad you can make it on in. Absolutely. Uh, the book's been out for a couple months now? Yeah. Uh, how are you feeling about it? I'm feeling good. It's It's gotten some good response, and uh, it's, it still we'll get some more. So, um, yeah, it's been a five-year project, so it's nice to have it see the light of day. So I've, I've read at least that the beginning of this book kind of owes its its genesis to a passion play uh, you saw put on by the inmates in Angola. And I was really interested with how you found yourself in that position and what kind of, in that experience, in that moment, what kind of inspired you to kind of make this a project that you wanted to write on? Okay. Um, well, I moved to New Orleans about seven years ago and people were constantly telling me that I needed to meet this photographer named Deborah Luster, who is now a very good friend of mine, but I, I didn't know her until I moved here. And the reason people kept saying we should meet is because we did work that has a lot in common. We both do work that has uh, a lot to do with crime and its consequences. And the reason we do that um, is personal, to be reductive about it, it's kind of personal. Uh, we both had a parent who was murdered, and what's more bizarre than that is that both of our her mother and my father were both murdered in the same city, Phoenix, Arizona. These were both contract killings, uh, the same detective worked both cases for a while, and then many years later, just by sheer coincidence, we ended up living in New Orleans, where neither of us is from, and so when I first met Deborah, uh, it turned out we were living two blocks away from each other. Um, bizarre. So she had done a lot of photography already at Angola and, and other prisons around the state, but she was going back to Angola to do this new project about uh, this performance of a passion play they were doing at the prison, which involved men from Angola and women from St. Gabriel come over every day to do rehearsals and eventually the performance. And we ended up going together, Deborah and I, just right after we first met. And she told me very wisely that I shouldn't prepare for what I was going to experience. Yeah. Um, that if I wanted to do research and homework, I could do that afterwards, but don't do it before. That was great advice. And so we ended up going, we ended up spending a whole week there, which was a surprise. We, they, Kathy Fontenot, the assistant warden there at the time, gave us uh, a ranch for us to have a place to sleep every night, and then we just spent the whole day, every day. Deborah was taking photographs, and I was kind of just wandering around talking to the uh, incarcerated folks who were acting in this play, and they were rehearsing, and there were 70 of them, so a lot of the time they were, they were really just standing around waiting for their scene to come up, which meant that they had a lot of time to talk to me, and once they started talking, they would they would go very deep um, and tell me a lot. And so I just came away. I talked to about f over 40 people over the course of the week of length. And so I, I just came away from the experience with a lot of information, a lot of stories about what it's like to be in prison and uh, what it's like to end up in prison. How does one do that? Um, what is that trajectory like? Um, and... I wrote a nonfiction piece about that, a uh, magazine piece, but then I had a lot more to say, and that was what led to this novel. Okay, interesting. And yeah. 
people were willing to come and talk to you about stuff? Was it, did they feel like any pressure of that? Or was it just like, oh, this is somebody I can like, you know, give something to of myself. Like, what was that like, you know? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, when I first arrived at the prison, they were, they were practicing this play in the, in the, the rodeo arena because they have a rodeo there. Yeah. And there was no like orientation session or moment at all. So I was just there not even realizing at first who, 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 did, who were the incarcerated people and who weren't because they were dressed in street clothes. And then it was just, a, you know, I had to just sort of insinuate myself into the scene and walk up to people uh, and tell them what I was doing and <laughs> Why I was doing that, which was, uh, which at the first part of the experience was kind of awkward and even a little daunting. Yeah. Uh, but once it became obvious what I was doing, you know, people could see what I was doing. They had, I had my notebook out and all of that. Then it was not uh, effortful at all. People were just coming up to me because they wanted to tell their story. They wanted to tell it to me and have me spread the spread the word. So there was, you know, there, there was a, a lot of reason for them to want to talk to someone like me who was going to write about it. And then you just get into this interesting and confusing space, I guess, where you're, you're hearing all these very personal stories told by people who have, you know, been convicted of a crime, usually a violent crime. Yeah. And so you're, you're trying to listen very carefully and empathetically, and you're also trying to be objective, sort of see as best you can what what is the real story, if there is a real story. Um, obviously, people who are serving long sentences in prison have a, have a self-interest in telling a story a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet I found myself, you know, in most cases, very, very drawn to the people who I was talking to, very... Uh, there was a strange bond that I felt, and I think they did too, that even though, you know, they were there in prison most of the time for violent crimes, and I, in a certain sense, I'm a victim of a violent crime. My father was murdered. When I would tell them that, it would it would change the dynamic of the conversation. Um, but I think it also made the conversations uh, deeper and richer. Yeah. You know, I was forming these pretty intense con connections with the people I was speaking to, all while it's nominally wearing this journalist hat, which was the hat of someone who's trying to be skeptical, trying to be uh, evaluative, figuring out, you know, you know. So, I mean, a very simple example of what I'm talking about is, and this didn't happen very often, but if somebody were to say, I'm innocent, I don't belong here, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't do the crime. Um, you know, are you supposed to believe that or not? Um, how, how can you assess a story like that? And that's part of what I ended up writing about in this book. Yeah, and kind of like yeah. trailing on that. And you, at the very beginning, the uh, the quote, one of the quotes that you pick at the beginning is a Percival uh, Everett quote. I was wondering if you could share that because I think that kind of comes to the heart of a lot of it. Yeah, I better look at it because I have a terrible memory. <laughs> I should remember the epigraphs of my own book. But uh, yeah, this is from a Percival Everett novel called Erasure. It goes like this. I have often stared into the mirror and considered the difference between the following statements. One, he looks guilty. Two, he seems guilty. Three, he appears guilty. Four, he is guilty. It's a kind of an enigmatic and also funny quote, I think, about stigma, really, I think, about, yeah. about uh, and the way that's 
the way that stigma can make one paranoid and uh, and the way that paranoia can become a kind of truth. And, uh, well, the main character in this book says that he didn't do the crime that he's in prison for, and he mm. says that he was coerced into giving a false confession. And uh, that's sort of what got me thinking about that Purcell Everett quote when, uh, as I was writing this book, because I wanted to imagine how that would be possible for someone to give a false confession, you know, to say that I was involved in this murder when I wasn't involved in a murder. I mean, yeah. why would anybody do that? Mm -hmm. And I did research about why someone might do that. But the, the research says things like, well, this is usually someone who's very young. Um, you know, a teenager would do that maybe because they, they're just so uh, out of their depth. That's sort of what happened with the Central Park Five. Yeah. Um, or they are had developmentally challenged or they are on drugs, etc. These are like the, the common expressions why someone that would do that. But I wanted my character to not, I wanted the explanation to be less simple than that when I, when I created the character in my yeah. book. I wanted more to imagine if somebody had the mental landscape that I have, you know, if I was in that position, how would it be possible that I might end up after, I don't remember how many hours right now Kendrick is interrogated for, but it's a lot. It's more than 10. Yeah. Um, what would that feel like? And what would it be that would finally cause me to perhaps give a, a false narrative yeah. that incriminates me. And then that narrative becomes your identity. And you, mm -hmm. I, you, you've talked about that a little bit. And in other interviews I've heard, I, I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of the book is delving into um, your narrator and, and you as the author's psyche of writing about inmates and kind of mm -hmm. the caricature that we have in our minds and the idea of an inmate is supposed to be a certain thing. But you go in and you talk about in the beginning of the book, uh, this almost like surreal scene of like having the... Uh, uh, the Angola newspaper writer writing a story alongside you, <laughs> yeah. which is just like uh, super normal, right? It should be super yeah. normal, but inside of a prison, inside of this place, inside of this uh, thing that you've projected in your mind uh, and you project on other people, it, it all becomes surreal and you have to kind of balance yourself in that. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, one of the first and most dramatic uh, experiences I had that first day being in the prison as a as a journalist was the the immediate confrontation with this with all of these stereotypes and prejudices I didn't realize that I had yeah um, and which I think we must all have just from consuming as much media as we all do and watching TV and that sort of thing but um, you know how just how striking it was to me how ordinary people were yeah um, and that journalist for example who then told me his whole story. Um, he, you know, he's in there for murder. He told me the story of the crime. Um, and I, I will say this now, and I'm not sure that it will really reach anybody, but but I hope that the book explicates this in a deeper way than I'm going to be able to do right now. But what I'm going to say is that prison ends up kind of reducing somebody to this one thing that they did, or, yeah. or, or maybe more than one thing, but th this, this violent act that they committed. Um, and that resonates so much with our imaginations that it can be very, uh, I guess surprising would be the word, to see how, how that, that, that one act does not define someone entirely and that, it, that uh, uh, people who are otherwise just like you and me can still go on and commit these acts, which is to say that probably we could too. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a cliche, I think, when I say it, but I think when you, when you see it, 
40 or 50 times in the space of a few days, yeah. it ceases to be a cliche and, and it becomes overwhelming, you know? Yeah, no, I, I get that. I was talking with um, another writer, Brian Boyles, about a piece mm -hmm. he read in The Atlantic about Paul Manafort and about mm -hmm. um, certain cliches, certain stereotypes uh, are big buzzwords, you know, like corruption or, or, you know, criminal or certain things that we hear and we see throughout our lives. When you come across a really good example or a really visceral example of that, it kind of changes your understanding of that word in a way. Uh, and I think that's, that's what you're trying to, to put across. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a hard thing to, in this case, I think hard for me because I, I'm not a, used to speaking in the language, I guess, of social activism or political activism. Yeah. But this book has forced me to, to do that in a way that I'm fine with. But but trying to communicate in a way that's not a, you know, I'm a writer, so I can do it that way. But when I'm trying to just talk to people about what it was like there and, and what it has been like there, I mean, I've become friends with people who are in prison. Yeah. I've been I've been friends with them now for five years. And so other friends, they're often asking me, well, you know, what is it like? Um, and it's 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 hard. I, I really have to slow down with it and kind of allow myself a few paragraphs to describe it. But yeah, yeah. Um, in the same way, Brian's example of someone, of, of a firsthand encounter with corruption can change your, your idea of what that word corruption means. Uh, so can the idea of a human... You know, it's it's a ridiculous thing to actually say that people in prison are humans too. They need yeah. to be humanized. <laughs> you know, they are already human. They don't need to be humanized. But, exactly. But um, but there's still that tension there. I think. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Is it, that's also like it's one of the big big questions of like us as a species, right? Is like, what do you do with somebody when they do something bad? Yes. And we, you know, after thousands of years, even like millions of years that we don't have recorded, probably it's just like we still haven't figured out a good answer for that or a general consensus answer for that. It is interesting. I mean, uh, and that's another question that I'm often asked: is is am I a prison abolitionist? Because this book is is very critical of prisons. You know, I think I stayed in this book kind of as simply as I could. That, in you know, in my view, whatever the view of my personal view is worth, whatever that is worth, what I believe is that it, you know, the only possible justification for prison is to pr protect the public from someone who's dangerous who's going to commit other crimes. But I also think it's complicated. Yeah, even that is complicated. And I, and I think that that's not the reason why most of the people in prison are in prison now. I think most people in prison now are are there for other reasons that aren't rational reasons. And so I think that if we could at least address the irrational part of this, that would be a huge start. Yeah. Um, and then we can talk about the rational part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But uh, it, there's so much irrational right now that's going on, especially in this state with the length of those sentences and the, the pathetic lack of resources spent to, to run a public defender's office, yeah. and the short trials, all of those things. There's no way to justify any of that in a rational way. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're exactly right. It, it, it's it's interesting looking at that. And then if you look back at history, you know, looking at your textbooks, you you can use it as that as an analogy for why certain things happen in the past that have been wrong. Whereas this this multifaceted, you know, kind of critiquing people with multiple opinions, but the narrative from the past says, well, they didn't do anything about it, even though they knew. And you, this is a good, like, insight to why things don't happen and why things yeah. remain rationalized like that. Yeah. I think it's just something I think about all the time because, uh, I, you know, so one of the historical episodes that I've been looking at a lot recently, uh, the last couple of years at least, is is the, the run-up to the Civil War. And then what were the arguments that people managed to make 
against abolitionism? What, what, what were people actually able to think of to say to justify this thing that nobody agrees with anymore? Yeah. Because I think that the, the way incarceration works is very much like that now. The only thing I can, I can come to is that there's always going to be a skeptical, cynical side of, of these arguments that is used to sort of keep the thing, the status quo in place. Yeah. And that there just seems to be this universal, eternal need for there to be some other people putting pressure on the other side of that, whether they win or not. I don't feel like we're, we're I don't feel like the, the side that I'm on is winning at all right now. I mean, I think um, the, the opposite, of course, for my whole lifetime, I feel like the kinds of things that I believe in have been on the run. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I just feel like on all of these issues, whether it's incarceration, gun control, et cetera, that there's, there's, there is a, there is a need to um, have a group of quote uh, idealists who are p- at least pushing that agenda. Yeah. yeah. No, I get that. Um, which to kind of, kind of pivot to something else more, more, more craft focused. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you approach writing dialogue? You seem very thoughtful about like thinking kind of the back and forth as, as just from that conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when writing dialogue in fiction, what are some of the important things for you to kind of like showcase on the page? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I, dialogue is kind of often challenging for me. Sometimes it's hit or miss. Um, in other words, sometimes I can just summon it up and it sounds okay. And sometimes I really struggle. Yeah. But I think what I always try to do is not have the dialogue be too directly about what is at stake. Yeah. The character should sort of talk around the target area a little bit. Uh, and there's usually, should, usually it works best if they have some, some degree of conflict between the two characters so that there's some kind of back and forth pressure. Someone says something, the other one pushes back. Someone says something, the other one pushes back. Um, and then in this, this book, it was... Uh, you know, there's lots of different kinds of American speech in this book. And so that was another extra challenge for me to do, you know, black New Orleans dialogue. Um, you know, I did the best I could with it. But I kind of enjoyed that challenge, too, you know. Yeah, you had a lot of constraints for this book. I, I know, yeah. um, reading a little bit more about it and re- reading the book itself, mm. um, including, you know, being a, a, a white author trying to navigate this majority black space yeah. uh, and people of, of color that are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that kind of like for you in the writing process? And what were some kind of strategies that you developed to, to deal with that kind of thorny issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just... When I left the prison after that week, I, I knew I wanted to write about it. And then I wrote the essay, and I knew that I had more to write about it. And then I, I just wanted to do this. And I, I said, well, I, I, I can either do this or I can walk away from it and not do it. And the safer choice is to not do it. <laughs> um, because I'm not even from Louisiana. I am a white person writing a lot about uh, black spaces, like you said. Um, and that's a very vexed thing to do. And I, so I decided that the only way to do it, for me anyway, was to make that problem a part of the book. You know, yeah. To uh, write this strange novel, strange in the formal sense, in which uh, it starts out really as almost straight-up nonfiction. A guy who is almost exactly like me yeah. goes to the prison, does this project that I did, uh, sees this play... Uh, but then makes a turn, which I hope is kind of an invisible turn, into fiction, where I start to explore. I start to imagine 
what if after that week, instead of just, you know, going about my life, what if I got really involved in the story of one of the people that I met that day, yeah. that week? Um, and so that's what the book is. Um, and I, I, I just wanted the, the narrator to be someone who's essentially me so that I could interrogate all of these things that I was doing while I was portraying them on the page. Um, what business is it of this narrator to do this? What is it? about this world that he can see and what is it about it that he can't see and why, um, what's his stake in all of this. Um, and I, I wanted that to be personal because I just felt that that would be more, uh, potent, you know? Yeah. Mm. No, I agree. And I think that's a really excellent strategy (laughs) for getting into it because it is, it is a huge issue at, at this time in a lot of circles. Um, yeah. Throughout your work, you are, investigating a lot of aspects of violence, as you kind of mentioned, consequences, people that commit it, uh, your own personal history with that. Um, what was it like kind of approaching that for the first time um, in, in, in your first book, you know, with Sway as well as the memoir you wrote and kind of really addressing these things? Was it hard for you to kind of like really look into this? Has it made uh, understanding it easier, coping with your own personal deals with that easier or... It's a good question. Um, so before I wrote Sway, which was 2008, that book came out, I spent 10 years writing a very strange, long, postmodern kind of novel. It did yeah. all kinds of things. It was never published. I tried out a million different things in that book. It was 600 pages long. Wow. Um, and what I learned from that experience, which was very, it was uh, a very disappointing experience because that book was never published, but... I learned a lot about myself as a writer, and, and what I learned was surprising, which was that one of the things that I seemed good at doing in that book was writing about violence, which I never thought I would. That's not anything I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and now it seems quite obvious to me why that that is the case. It's because of my father. But, you know, something like that happens. My father was murdered when I was six years old. I think one of the ways that I chose to... Uh, deal with that was that I, I didn't want to be defined by that. You know, yeah. like I didn't choose that for that to happen. Um, I didn't want to be. I didn't want to think of myself as the victim of violence, the victim of anything. I wanted to be, you know, an independent person with agency, etc. Um, but the further I went, or kind of tried to run away from that, I think the the uh, the more futile that that fleeing became. And so I wrote Sway, uh, which is an exploration of a different kind of violence, but it, 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 the themes of that book are throughout all of my books, I think, which is charisma, violence. Um, how do people fall under this spell of something that is, is uh, for lack of a better word, is evil, I suppose. Sway was the first, first attempt to do that, and then I wrote the book about my father right after that, which was, a, yeah, it was the first real nonfiction work I ever did, yeah. uh, first journalism I ever did. And then this is very much a companion piece to that book about my father. And that was a, ch- a challenge to keep referencing this other book that other, you know, the reader probably hasn't read that other book. Yeah. So you're going to kind of fill in the gaps a little bit. Uh, and what's interesting that I think, and I can't promise that this is true, but writing the book about my father didn't purge me of the need to write about this stuff, yeah. obviously, because I wrote, uh, my, I pity the poor immigrant, and then I wrote this book, Vengeance both of which, again, are about more violence. But something about this book, unlike the one that's literally about my father, this book seems to have done something for me where I just don't feel I need to 
go there anymore. That um, I've, 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 I'm not pulled into that direction, which is kind of a relief. Yeah. After four books about violence. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. So your next book is going to be a charming comedy. Exactly, about, yeah, yeah, know, about puppies and, and yeah. <laughs> rainbows and whatever yeah, else yeah, after little, little old people drinking tea yeah. and solving mysteries. Yeah, no, I don't know what it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that, though, because I do think, like, kind of getting to investigate that space in a way that, um, with fiction in particular, you get a really nuanced portraiture and a place to kind of play in a way that maybe nonfiction doesn't allow you a lot of the times. Yeah. At least more of the more stern, you know, very fact-based nonfiction. Sure. Um, no, that, that, that's cool. Mm. Um, to kind of switch and pivot a little bit more, uh, I know you write for the New York Times book review from mm. time to time. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in your kind of um, approach or your, your, your mantra on how to tackle criticism and writing critically about books or, or reviewing literature because I, I know there are several camps that people can fall and I was wondering what's your kind of guiding principle in that realm well I have strong opinions about what I think fiction should do and 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 how it should do it um, yeah. so um, and I, I don't think that I'm in the majority with my opinions about those things but I, I do get fairly often the chance to articulate that in these book reviews for the New York Times um, I I just I'm I'm not out to settle scores or uh, attack anyone personally, but I I am just I fiction matters to me. I've been writing it for 27 years, very seriously, very with a lot of dedication. So um, when I write a review, I just I my you know I think the first question I ask is. There are four questions, and they're they're not my questions. They're Philip Larkin's questions. Mm -hmm. Philip Larkin, the poet, he judged the Booker Prize once, uh, the prize for novels, and so he had these four easy questions, I think, and, they, and I use these all the time. Could I read it? Is the first question. Because sometimes you just simply can't read something, um, as in it's badly written. Uh, and the second question is, uh, if I could read it, could I believe it? which is an odd thing to ask about a work of fiction because obviously fiction is not true. Could you believe it? Um, if I could believe it, did I care? And if I cared, uh, what was the quality of my caring and would it last? I mm. think those are, those are a pretty good way, a good rubric to look at a, a work of fiction. Yeah. Um, I guess my, my mantra would be that I just, I, I want, it always is, fiction has always got to be entertaining, but I always want it to be more than just entertaining. Yeah. No, I think that that's a great answer <laughs> um, and a really great framework for kind of basing things. And it, it, have you found your yourself less like, you know, you know, uh, pinching your nose at a work and more just kind of disappointed, like like a parent almost, because you see things in a book mm -hmm. to where it could have gone right and it just did not. And you just like, I wish you had developed this more, you'd have more time to do this, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that way of... Quite often, yeah. I mean, sometimes I just do really like something. So to kind of wrap up, I'm wondering if you have any uh, events coming up on the horizon, as well as uh, what you're reading right now. Yeah, great. Uh, so I do have one last event in New Orleans, uh, which is May 20th, a Sunday, uh, with my friend Lady Hubbard, another novelist in town. Um, I'm not sure where it is. It's through the Faulkner House uh, bookstore. Um I think it's in the Presbyterian, but I'm not sure. 
That should be cool though. May 20th, it'll be on their website. Okay. And what am I reading? I'm reading a novel by Carlos Fuentes right now called uh, A Changing Skin. I don't remember what it's called. Uh, <laughs> I just started it. It's, uh, I'm reading a lot about Mexico right now because I'm going to go there and doing research for a new book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with, well, I guess he's at Tulane, Yuri Herrera? Yes, work? of course. Uh, which is yeah. uh, phenomenal. That, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Has he been on this show? He has a couple of times. I yeah. always enjoy talking with him. He's Yeah. A... I'm going to take some of Yuri's books to read with me when I'm on the trip too, actually. Awesome. Good deal. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Zachary, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Thanks, you, David. Thanks a lot. That was author Zachary Lazar, whose newest novel is entitled Vengeance and is out now. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. You can also find all of our interview podcasts on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on Google Play, as well as on Google Play and iTunes. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.